So the title of this morning's talk is Empowering the Inner Teacher. I refer to the inner teacher, teacher as a way to distinguish it from the outer teacher, namely this guy. Oh, whoever you select as your teacher or your guru. In making a contrast between inner and outer, I mean, no way implying that they are at odds with each other. Quite the contrary. They are meant to complement each other. In fact, the primary role of the outer teacher, the guy sitting here now, or whoever it may be, is to empower the inner. And I hope I can make that clear in the course of this talk. The Buddha was certainly very clear on that When he was 80 years old and near death, he urged his followers to be lamps unto yourselves. Meaning, be your own teachers. And he said that not just because he was about to die, although that was the the trigger for it, but that's what he had been teaching all his life. An outstanding example of this is his discourse to members of a tribe known as the Kalamas. Listen to what the Kalamas asked and what the Buddha responded, as reported by the sutras, of course, as, uh, in a book by Walpola Raula. Says Walpola, the Buddha once visited a small town called Kesaputta. The inhabitants of this town were known by the name Kalama. When they heard that the Buddha was in the town, the Kalamas paid him a visit and told him, Sir, there are some recluses and Brahmins who visit Kesaputta. They explain and illumine only their own doctrine and despise and condemn and stern, spurn the other's doctrines. But for us, sir, we have always doubt and perplexity as to who among these venerable recluses and Brahmins spoke the truth and who spoke falsehood. Then, says Ralpula, the Buddha gave him gave them this advice 
unique in the history of religions. Yes, Calamus, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity, for a doubt has a reason in a matter which is doubtful. Now, look you, Calamus, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not, be not led by the authority of religious text, nor by the mere logic of inference, not, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities nor by the idea, this is our teacher. But, O oh, Calamus, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong, then give them up. And when you know for yourself that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. End of quote. The Buddha went even further. He told the bhikkhus that a disciple should examine even the Buddha himself so that he, the disciple, might be fully convinced of the true value of the teacher whom he followed. Quite a lesson. <coughs> Notice that um, the Buddha invites us to question not just tradition and hearsay, teachers and religious texts, including his own words, but also our own logic, inferences and opinions. It's not, it's not just a matter of who we think. We choose to believe in. <coughs> he invites us instead to know from the depth of ourselves. Notice the difference between opinions, beliefs, etc., and the depth of ourselves. One of the major obstacles in being able to see from the depth of ourselves is that our ability to see out there overrides our, our ability to see what's close to us. Let me just give you a crude but for me, poignant example. Not long ago, I was at a, a UPS shop in Rhinebank. You know, they make copies there, among other things. And uh, 
So I was taking this book to copy some pages. Pages actually by Ajahn Amaro. I'll talk about that in a moment. And having paid for the copies, I was about to walk out of a shop when I couldn't find the book. It was nowhere to be seen. You know, you don't want to forget the book in the Xerox machine and you open it, it wasn't there. So I asked the clerk, have you seen the book? And he said, look under your own arm. (laughs) 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 Sure enough, (laughs) there it was. And this, this story, in fact, tallies very well with a couple of stories from this book. One is a story about someone who suddenly gets alarmed because he realizes that in in spite of seeing clearly all around him, he cannot see his eyes. And he goes, runs around shouting, has anybody seen my eyes? The other is a story I was actually Xeroxing at the UPS story. And uh, let me use the Xerox to share this <laughs> with you. It's a story about, well, uh, the story is, um, okay, by Ajahn Amara. It's told by Ajahn Amaro in a book, in that book, an author of the book. And um, he tells a story about um, an Englishman, Ajahn Sumedho, who went to Thailand, uh, what, 40 years ago or so, to study with Ajahn, with Ajahn Chan. He started out life, says the court, at Ajahn Chah's monastery as a very zealous, hyper-keen monk. Within a few months of being there, he was convinced that Ajahn Chah was the greatest Dharma teacher and the most enlightened master on the planet. He was certain that what Papong, the monastery he was at, was the greatest monastery in the world, and that Theravada Buddhism was the answer to all problems. He was really flaming. But of course, we know that after the while, a while, the fuel runs down. The months and years went by, and Ajahn Sumedho started to notice a few faults in the way Ajahn Chah handled certain situations. And in some of his personal habits, such as the way he chewed betel nut, that's a very habitual thing in in Asia, no one at the monastery was allowed to chew betel nut. Not that Ajahn Sumedho wanted to chew betel nut, 
that a lot of other monks did. Although Ajahn Chah banned it, he could do as he pleased. He also banned cigarettes, which are quite popular among the monks in Thailand. This was a, his Sumedho, was the first monastery in Thailand. Sorry, this his Ajahn Chah. His was the first monastery in Thailand where cigarettes were banned. But Ajahn Chah still smoked on occasion. Ajahn Sumedho came across him on a back path one day and Ajahn Chah had a cigarette in his mouth. He cut the master in the act. But Ajahn Chah just looked at Ajahn Sumedho and gave a big grin. <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho eventually decided enough was enough. He developed a list that carefully enumerated all of Ajahn Chah's fault. He wanted to be prepared and to have all the facts straight and ready for his teacher. So he got his list, list together, chose the moment, and asked Ajahn Chah, Would it be convenient to talk sometimes? I have a few things to discuss. <laughs> Ajahn Chah agreed to talk to his student. Ajahn Sumedho plucked up his courage and finally approached Ajahn Chah. He had earnestly memorized his list of all the things he felt compelled to bring up. He began to recount to his teacher, you're really putting on weight, you know. Yeah, actually quite a bit heavy that you need to be. You spend too much time talking with people instead of meditating with the rest of us. And often, what you say, what you're saying when talking, is not really good dharma. It's just a kind of chit-chat and shooting the breeze, such as talking about a, this year's mango crop and how the chicken are doing or giving somebody advice on how to look after the water buffalo. What's the purpose of discussing life in northeast Thailand so much? And then there's a double standard around beetle nuts and cigarettes when you're supposed to be setting an example to the monks. End of list. As he completed his list, long detailed, detailed delivery, and is just waiting for a cold rebuff or to get blasted. Because in normal circumstances it's reasonable to expect that kind of reaction. But Ajahn Chah looked at him gently and said, Well, I'm very grateful to you, Sumedho, for bringing these things up to me. 
and really consider what you've said and what can be done. But also, you should bear in mind that perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not perfect. Otherwise, you might be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. Quite powerful. Quite powerful. This this question of find the, finding the healer inside ourselves, finding the Buddha inside ourselves. It happens in spiritual practice, and also it happens in medical practice. See, when the tendency is when we confront the need to heal our body, we also, like Ajahn Sumedho, compile lists of things to look, to consider. Actually, in medicine, list of symptoms, and we submit them to our doctor. We expect her or him to deal with those symptoms solely from the outside. We tend to forget, as Ajahn Cha had said for the mind, we tend to forget to create the opportunities for our bodies to heal, heal itself. <coughs> there is this hierarchical separation between the medical doctor who masterminds the treatment and the patient who passively receives it. Within these hierarchical cultures, physicians can even prescribe dummy pills, the so-called placebos, sugar pills or whatever they have. You know, just they have a shape of a pill, but no active ingredient. And they work. They become effective because of the power of suggestion and the authority that patients confer onto the physician. And yet, let's also consider the other side of the coin. In a bizarre twist, Placebos can also empower patients to participate in their own cure. This is one example. It's a recent study in which patients with ir ir irritable bowel syndrome, whatever that is, were given a placebo and told, look, this is just a placebo. They were explained. They were dummy pills. But they also told that in medical practice they have been found 
to work. <laughs> and you know what? It worked just as well <laughs> as if the patients had known that it was a dummy pill. In other words, in some st strange twist, placebos empowered the patients in this story, anyway, in this medical story, to heal themselves. Another form of empowerment in medical practice by the patient itself is this extraordinary program that John Kabat-Zinn developed uh, <coughs> some, time, some time ago in, in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts. It's called the Mindfulness-Based mindfulness Stress Reduction Program or MBSR program. The program uses meditation as a major tool to defuse the overlay of anxiety that interferes with the functioning of our body. How? By providing a pathway for the patients to get in direct touch with what's actually going on. This direct connection with the experience can be so powerful that it replaces the fictional phantasmagoric scenarios that we projected onto our bodies. And instead, instead, the practice of meditation, particularly the way John Kabat-Zinn directs it towards the body, invites us to see things as they are. Oh, that's the way it actually feels. Not I think it should feel, but actually feels. And so we create space for our bodies to heal themselves. And this MBSR program has been extraordinarily successful in curing a large variety of conditions, including aches and pains, asthma, fatigue, high blood pressure, and a variety of skin conditions. So, this is available. Self-healing is available, both for mind and body. The required step is that we can empower our inner teacher, our inner healer. And as you probably know, our own group has been making efforts in the last uh, eight months or so, six, eight months, to explore in how to become, each one of us, our inner teacher. 
I invited the group to explore that towards the end of the last retreat here. And uh, there followed a, a meeting at our home in Rhinebeck, and, and specifically for that, and then the deliberations within our group on how best to do it. It was both, both about teaching each other in a group, not just the assigned teacher teaching, but everybody else teaching. And, of course, very importantly, teaching ourselves as well, each one of us. Each one of us becoming a lamp onto ourselves. And, of course, not to, to deride the appointed teacher, not to write myself, but there's a role there too. Um, we, in our Wednesday meetings, we started exploring how to do that. One form of exploration was instead of myself sitting on the teacher seat um, people members of a group taking turns <coughs> and leading the group and I was great, very grateful to those of you who volunteered to do that having tried that format for several weeks I, I felt and I think the group agreed I, I imagine the group agreed nobody disagreed anyway there was a clumsiness in that uh, that detracted from the quality of our interactions. Just because you never knew who was coming because we'd take turns. It wasn't a question of replacing one teacher by another. It was a question everybody sort of taking turns. So it seemed simpler for me to resume my nominal outward role as both facilitator at times and teacher at other times. But making it clear that I, that no teacher was to be the final authority. That if what I said was of use to you, what was, was of fine. If it was of no use to you, then to let it come in an ear out the other ear. Or even better, to openly question what I was saying. The new form format also opened the way for cross-dialogue among the participants. And the only condition for that is that the person who was being addressed, a potential partner in a conversation, say, I'm willing to engage in conversation now. Because sometimes we want to stay silent. That's fair enough too. And so there was that getting permission. I, I could mediate that and not. And so, on. so this brought flexibility to my role and to the role of everybody in the group. 
for myself, I may sometimes act as a teacher, other times simply as a facilitator. And this flexibility creates spaces for your inner teacher to step in as needed to. In this retreat, the flexibility is there for the inquiry period. So, and, you know, it's very much in your hands. If you simply address me, I respond as a teacher. If you address others or address the whole group and don't want me to participate, it becomes clear that that's the way to do it. And of course, on Friday evening, a number of you volunteered to give uh, Dharma talks, and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you very much. You're fabulous, by the way. Diverse, you know, rich. So, in sum, I've reviewed the ways in which teachers and teachings can contribute to empower the inner, inner teacher, as jo- shown by the Buddha himself, by Ajahn Chah, by medical practices like the MBSR program. And yes, by our own efforts in that direction. So this is the first part of my talk. The second part, I want to talk about how to let that empowering empowerment in. Because the efforts of the outer teacher alone are obviously not enough. We have to be able to receive the empowerment. It has to be let in. It has to be put to work inside each one of us. Are we ready for that? Well, practice is very much about uh, getting us ready for that, obviously. Most of the Buddha's teachings are concerned with that. Let me just highlight two aspects of this process of of letting empowerment in. One is our willingness to drop our shields, our protective shields. And the other is our ability to embrace freedom. Now, as it must be very clear to many of you, and certainly was very clear to me in the early stages of my practice, dropping our shields is not a trivial task. We've developed these shields as protective devices 
We may not need them, but uh, we seem to believe that we do, you know. It's been our lifelong training to get in close in this protective armor. And it gets to be particularly difficult to get out of our armor when we realize that we are surrounded by others that are equally protected by their own armors, <laughs> by their own shells of protection, which means also insensitivity. We tend to present ourselves to each other hidden behind the veil of the persona we adopt, the ego we adopt. And this persona has not the capacity to learn because it has made itself invulnerable to the reality of things. Our practice is very much about undermining that invulnerability towards real. Huh. One way is to penetrate our shield by way of the body, in the say in the course of meditation. The instructions invited to connect directly with bare sensations. Say a sensation accompany the breath. Because attending to the breath is not a habitual activity. Chances are that in the course of our lives we haven't developed techniques to distance ourselves from such experience. Therefore, if we can connect with it and stay with it, there's a good chance that we'll get at least a taste of what it's like to be with the real directly. A simple real, just the sensations I feel in my nostrils or whatever. Without being cut up by the habitual distancing techniques. There's a chance that we will allow for the impermanence of it, each breath and the unpredictability of its characteristics. It may be long or short, rough or smooth, deep or shallow. Also, get used to the fact that it has a beginning, a middle and an end. It ends. It's not permanent. And then, having practiced this attitude by being with the breath, then we may be ready to extend that attitude to other areas of our life, our mind included. Of course, penetrating the shield in closing the mind, our thoughts and emotions, included, is more difficult than in the course of being with the body, being with the mind. It's full of dangers. 
who knows what feeling will I discover that's been there covered up for ages we've undergone a lifelong training of trying to keep our thoughts not always succeeding but trying to keep our thoughts and emotions invulnerable to the ups and downs of life particularly to the downs so in other words our mental armor is more difficult to penetrate than the bodily one so the, the training with the body it's a um, very useful to do to invite us to do the same thing with the mind I, I talked a little bit about this sort of conundrum of mind and body on Friday for those of you who were here when I talked about the story of the magic ring just briefly this is a story of a king who wants to learn about impermanence so to remind him of the transitoriness of things his advisors gave him a ring with an inscription which says this to to shall pass in the story apparently the inscription did the major part of the work and the and the king ended up convinced that yeah this too shall pass and I don't have to cling to anything and I can relate to things much better but as I said in the reality of the king's life I imagine I bet that more important than the inscription might have been the sensations in his annular finger as the pulse was felt in the contact with the ring of course people who wear rings for a long time they got used to those and they they don't recognize him any longer most of the time but certainly the king had just put on the ring and so the palpitation of the pulse gave him a direct somatic message that then can teach the mind to get that message in its own turf as well and so the mind becomes ready to tackle both states of despair and bliss just to be present with him without judgment of course mind will prefer bliss to despair but 
the point is not to feed any preferences. Wisdom will eventually tell us from our inner, inner teacher that the true gift is to be able to be fully with what is, with no shield between us and reality. And now for the next step. As we drop the shield, even for an instant, we begin to have glimpses of what it's like to be free. The extraordinary treasure that's available to us to live unprotected by this multi-layer arm. A treasure of nothing, of no thing, one could say, because a treasure that involves letting go of everything. It involves dropping all sense of ownership, including ownership of the life that we live, including ownership of the other person much as we tend to fall into that habit. We get to a place where ownership simply does not compute, where there's no score, me versus you, to be kept any longer. Where we can let life touch us fully, unimpeded, where we can let bliss and despair, like and dislike, pleasure and pain touch us. And we can be with all of that, without denial and without puffing things up in our mind. Where we can be free from the compulsions of the selves. When we can stop listening to the, our compulsiveness, we, we may hear it, we may hear it, but not tuning into it. And we begin to tune in instead to the voice of our inner wisdom. Where we can let all that comes, come our way, including life and death. When it comes. So, let's sit for a few moments in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.